Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with James Thomas, MD, about the article, Extubation During Pediatric Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, ECMO, a Single Center Experience, published in the November 2014 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Thomas is a professor of pediatric critical care medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and the medical director of their ECMO program. Thank you for being here today, Jim. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks for having me. You're going to be talking today about your experience with ECMO at the Children's Medical Center at Dallas. Can you tell us about your experience there? Sure. I'd be happy to. This is this is the product of, of a group think. We had assembled a very good and ardent ECMO physician team in Dallas during the last few years there, particularly in the period from about 2008 to 2013. And we were getting better and better at doing longer ECMO runs. You know, traditionally, the thought had been to get patients on for ECMO as short as possible and back onto the ventilator or onto their inotropic support as quickly as possible with the notion that ECMO was a disaster waiting to happen. But what we've learned and everybody's learned in the field through the time is that with improvements in technology and knowledge of anticoagulation and some of the pumps and components available, that longer ECMO runs were possible and, in fact, desirable because some patients took longer to heal. With that came the sort of attendant complications of having patients sedated while on ECMO for longer periods of time, and issues that wouldn't come up in a shorter run became more commonplace. As I alluded to, the, the, one of the biggest problems was sedation and sedation toxicity. And as patients were on on ECMO support for two, three, four, and more weeks, the issues around sedation problems began to crop up. So actually, our decision, uh, it sounds more formal than it was, to begin extubating was really in response to troubles around adequately sedating patients for the long term. And really, what became a practice later on began as an attempt to remove the major irritant in our ECMO patients so that they didn't need to be sedated with polypharmacy. In this report, what did you do in the study you report here? Well, our study is a review of what our practice had become because when we started this, we weren't intending to study anything. And we were about six or seven patients into that. And, and, you know, we'd taken our cue from some of the transplant centers in Europe with adults, Karolinska Institute in in Stockholm. and, And they had done some of this in selected adult patients. And we were like, well, I, we can try it, and if it's if the patients do okay, we can leave them extubated. And then about halfway into the process, we said, you know, nobody else is doing this in children. Maybe we ought to report it. So then we went to the IRB and got, you know, approval to look back at our experience. And by the time we'd sat down to, to write it up, we'd accumulated 16 patients. And our approach was really not disease-specific and not organ-specific. It was if a patient had uh, were adequately supported on ECMO, i.e. did not need a ventilator or anything else, but it was mostly a ventilator to support mostly oxygen needs, then we could consider the patient for a trial for extubation. And that's and that's how it fact. And so the, the report itself is simply a review of our experience. And we have some cardiac patients in there. We have some neonates in there. We have some older children in there with with anything from 
asthma with severe air leak syndrome and cardiovascular compromise to mycoplasma ARDS to congenital diaphragmatic hernias in newborns. So there's there's quite a variety of disease and 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 that I think is it's it's one of the bases for which the article could be criticized. But on the other hand, we were able to demonstrate in this limited series that there were no safety issues in any of these patients related to extubation itself. It must have taken a fair amount of courage to do the first few patients. How did you get the whole team to agree to this? Well, the first couple patients, they were so delirious and so difficult to keep calm and to keep moving that the only meaningful way we could control them was intermittent neuromuscular blockade, and nobody and any wanted to do that, right? That was that's sort of anathema to what right. we try to do in caring for children, any other patient I would imagine. And so it was, can, can we try this and see, and, how will, and we sort of mapped out how will we respond if the patient appears distressed? How will we respond if the patient has air hunger? How will we respond as a team to these issues? And so on the ECMO team, we were very sort of shoulder to shoulder with our primary intensive care colleagues as we went through this because it was kind of a discovery process as we did it. But what we, what we learned quickly, and maybe it was the luck of some of our first patients, was that the parents loved it very quickly because all of a sudden they could talk to their child again. The sedation requirements on an unintubated patient on ECMO are much, much lower, such that some of our patients ate, some of our patients watched videos. We even had patients going through PT, and, and in some subsequent experience here in Houston, we've had patients up and even walking a little bit as well. So it's been a long process. We had really wonderful colleagues in Dallas who were willing to explore this with us, not in a, you know, in a guinea pig fashion, but how can we provide care better to these patients? Because they, they were, they really, everybody was suffering when these children were delirious and thrashing about on the bed. Mm -hmm. The first two patients in your report, one in 2000 and one in 2003, were different from the subsequent patients in the starting around 2010. Can you tell us a bit about those children, why you decided not to? In those children were never intubated That's initially. So both of these, and, and uh, believe me, Margaret, we got, <laughs> we got a lot of questions about that in the review process for the article, as you can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, but that was, I mean, they're fair questions. And, 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 and so these were both patients that had large mediastinal masses. Both were malignant, and they had such airway compromise that they were both hypoxemic. And when they came in in severe distress, they were regarded by anesthesia, intensive care, and surgery, and oncology as, you know, any attempt to intubate them would be their death knell, right? And so right. what right. we did was we simply cannulated them awake with mostly with local anesthetic, a little bit of sedative, and then kind of finished the workup as far as phenotyping their malignancy, began chemotherapy, and then and as is typical with these, I don't, I think they were both lymphomas or one was a leukemia and one was a lymphoma. They, they regressed quite quickly once the therapy mm -hmm. was started and their airway compromise resolved relatively quickly and they were decannulated when their airway compromise and oxygenation were okay. So that was, it was clearly kind of a different breed a breed of fish, if you will, for, for that. But Absolutely. We got some, we kind of learned that we could manage ECMO without a ventilator. Right. And, and right. Talk, talk about courage. <laughs> <laughs> that, that must have uh, caused some 
staff anxiety in those days. Well, it, I mean, it did, and it, but it was also there was a bit of wonderment as well, and a lot of mm-hmm. people were like, "Well, why don't we do this with our other ECMO patients?" And then you know mm-hmm. that was greeted with the usual sort of, "No, that'll never happen." <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, the nature of ECMO, I don't know what it's like in other institutions, but in our institution before 2008, we could do a relatively large volume of ECMO patients, like 40 or 50 cases a year, but no single uh, intensivist did more than two or three or four a year, right? Because it was kind of the luck of the draw. But mm-hmm. when we began to, when the need became such that a group of intensivists subspecialized as sort of ECMO experts, we all talked to each other about every single case. And I think it was... Uh-huh that sort of group think that that really allowed us to kind of question the dogma around what our practice had been up to that point. So tell us about the outcomes in these children that you managed extubated. So as I recall, I think we had five children pass away and 11 children survive. So our overall outcomes were, I believe, in about the 65% range, if, if I recall the, the paper. You mentioned that you didn't have any adverse events that were directly related to the extubation. Right. There was nothing that, you know, we didn't have children become suddenly hypoxemic and develop any abnormalities of gas exchange. We didn't have them decannulate themselves because they were less sedated. We didn't have any any additional bleeding complications because we were very alert everybody was very alert to the fact that this was different and that uh-huh. if, if something bad happened, everybody's sort of reputation, not to mention other things, might be on the line. <laughs> yeah. And so we were very attentive to those things. And we were actually so attentive that we were surprised that things went as well as they did. And we did have some interesting findings, though, Margaret. And, and you know, it's sort of like one of the things we learned it, I think we get a little blasé sometimes about, how should I say, cardiac arrest on VA ECMO, for example. <laughs> it's a, you know, nobody jumps to do CPR anymore. But, you know, we had one patient where, who was on, on ECMO at the time and, and the circuit failed. And this patient was extubated and it took the people in attendance about 20 seconds to realize that, you know, they had to do the A and ABCs. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And so, you know, the patient did fine on the ECMO run and everything, but uh, at that point, this was like patient number eight or nine in our series. We said, look, if we're going to extubate these kids, we have to have their ET tube and a laryngoscope at the head of the bed in case of circuit failure. And then some of these kids, especially with ARDS, when they're in the sort of acute phase of their illness, they completely collapse and white out their lungs. There's no... Mm-hmm. There's no benefit really to intubating and ventilating that kid because you're not going to get any gas exchange, but it's it's sort of bad form to not have an airway when you're doing CPR. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> I'll mention another thing that we found, which was really striking, was breathing behavior. Kids with completely consolidated lungs would have dyspneic breathing behavior. And that was actually quite distressing for, for the staff. And it's something we're working through here in, in Houston as well. And the funny thing is they can have dyspneic breathing behavior when their blood gases are, are absolutely normal. So you can have CO2s in the 40s and 50s, PCO2s in the 40s and 50s, and, and PO2s above 70 or 80 or even in the 100s. And they'll sit there looking like they're about to take their last breath. And if you ask them, the older patients say, it is, it's, it's weird. I, I, can't, I can't help myself. I have to do this and I can't stop it. And so we think it's probably a stretch receptor mediated reflex behavior. 
And it gets better with time, but it, it doesn't entirely go away. But it also is really quite an effective behavior to help spontaneous re-aeration of the lungs. And once they get some air in their their lungs, and, and you can see it on chest x-ray, they start to cough quite effectively and bring up all sorts of secretions. But it is distressful. It is hard for the staff to watch. And we've We've, we haven't come up with a, a real way to deal with it. We've talked about trying negative pressure ventilation. We've used non-invasive support to greater or lesser extent. But we don't, um, what some people have done, and including members of our group, is sedate them to the point that they're apneic. And that doesn't seem to be helpful because the, the breathing behavior isn't, isn't negative, isn't bad if it isn't causing them distress. And it sort of defeats the purpose of extubating them in the first place. It kind of does. And, you know, the funny thing, I'll tell you another thing, which we, we, you know, fits in the realm of anecdote right now. But if you deal with, if you have neonates who are whited out bilaterally, they won't breathe if their blood gases are normal. They're, they won't breathe at all. You have to actually bleed CO2 into the circuit and get their PCO2 above 50, 55 before they'll start breathing. So apparently that reflex isn't hardwired at birth. It takes a while to develop. Huh, interesting. <laughs> It was. I mean, it's the nice thing about this is that we've, you know, this is long-term ECMO and extubation has kind of become a probe for the natural history of some of the some of the respiratory diseases that we see, and we do see in in ARDSs in some of these ARDSs that you know it's not it's probably not the you know we talk a lot about maintaining lungs recruited and using an open lung strategy, and these are all sort of dogmas in our field, right? But, you know, honestly, many of these ARDS kids we saw, and I we included a series of x-rays in the article of a representative patient, they, they re-recruited their, themselves spontaneously when, you know, when it was their time. And it sort of raises a question, how much do, are we really doing with a ventilator and how much of what's really taking place is just resolution of inflammation and return of surfactant function? Interesting. How did you manage sedation on these kids who mm-hmm. are extubated? You got to keep them from pulling out their cannulas mm-hmm. and jumping out of the bed and so forth. Oh, and yeah. Particularly the toddler age group who are not known for being particularly cooperative, and yet you had some in that age group in your series. We did. We did. And I, you know, I would say we're still a work in progress. It's difficult with the, the toddlers are the, the, the hardest ones. And there, there's some issues that we learned a little bit about sort of related to cannulation techniques. So sort of before I answer your question, one of the things we learned is with the smaller kids, using percutaneous cannulation with, say, a double lumen catheter is less desirable because you can't fix the catheter to the vessel very well. And so if it's just fixed to the skin, the catheter can migrate up and down. And in small kids where your tolerances are in the millimeter range, you can have positioning problems that don't result in decannulation, but you may you may flip out of the IVC into the right atrium, for example, with an Avalon. And so we have worked with our surgical colleagues to sort of encourage more of an open percutaneous technique with some of our smaller kids so that catheter self-repositioning isn't as frequent a problem. But the sedation is, is a different issue. And, you know, it's it's sort of funny because when we first started it, it was a much bigger problem because, as I alluded to, these kids had been on ECMO for a couple of weeks, 10 days sometimes. They're already habituated and tolerant. Some were delirious and hallucinating already. So their management was obviously much more complicated to just kind of like 
pull them back from the from the precipice, so to speak, <laughs> because they were unpredictable and they could be, you know, thrashing around. But if we had some kids that we sort of went very quickly from, say, intubation to cannulation to extubation, that was actually much easier. And they could be managed with relatively low levels of sedation. And oftentimes in the older kids, we would just use a little bit of narcotic. They really didn't even need benzodiazepine. And they could be talked into like, settle down, or if you need to roll, let's do it together mm -hmm. and, and, and these sorts of things. With the younger kids, we usually would use probably a little bit of benzo to kind of just calm down their natural hyperactivity, if you will. <laughs> Sometimes more in some of the later patients, you know, with, with dexmedetomidine becoming more popular, that was also employed by the primary intensivists as well. Interesting. How did you handle decannulation or other procedures if you had a child who was still on ECMO but was extubated? We would handle them like we would handle any other surgical procedure. You know, we did a pneumonectomy on one of our patients, which was done, actually was done in the in the room, but with an anesthesiologist and lots of and lots of blood products, we would do biopsies. We would do. I'm trying to think what else we did. We did a fair number of bronchoscopies, but that was usually as a prelude to extubation. With decannulation, it was kind of a mixed bag. If if a patient was already requiring minimal ECMO support and on trial off was being managed with nasal cannula for oxygen. A couple of kids, we just we just put an LMA in and decannulated them with a laryngeal mask airway. But some of them were so light that you that they really wouldn't tolerate tolerate that, and you had to sedate them or, or put them to sleep mm -hmm. essentially. And it was just better to control the airway. But some of them were extubated an hour or two after decannulation. So you'd reintubate them, decannulate them, and then extubate them as mm -hmm. soon as they. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How has your approach to extubation in kids on ECMO evolved over the past several years? You've been doing this now for six or seven years. Well, you know, that's a good question. I think it's a little bit hard to do to say because I've changed institutions, uh -huh. and so the, when you change institutions, there's a there's a new learning curve to be broached, if you will. And so, in some ways, we haven't made it as far. And, and several of us from the original ECMO team in Dallas are at different institutions, and we've all encountered the mm -hmm. same thing, mm -hmm. right? We go to a new place that's never done it before, and it's it's you feel like Sisyphus, <laughs> right? You know. Yeah, but I can understand um, the reluctance of people who have not done sure. this. No, absolutely. And, and, and we're, you know, that's one of the things that we also discovered as an ECMO team is as you got more sort of experience under your belt, your function became less and less sort of technical and more and more diplomatic. You're, you had to work with colleagues who weren't as comfortable as you in, in some of these things and sort of help them understand the benefits uh, or the potential benefits of it over over sort of practice as it used to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think we recognize and embrace that, that education is a, is, is, a, is as critical part of our, our role in trying to innovate and, and, and in successful innovation as, it, as is the technical piece of it. So I would say that we, I would extubate and, uh, and sort of forge ahead much more readily than many of my colleagues would. But in the end, we would want and we want our colleagues to be comfortable with this and embrace it as well. So we'll we'll take the time and effort necessary to get to that place. And what do you consider the major advantages and benefits of extubation and on the other side, the risks or potential harms? Well, it's, you know, the, the risks, 
we've already sort of touched on mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, decannulation, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that's always a fear when something's only held in by a little bit of cat gut, right, or whatever. That's probably <laughs> the biggest fear of your colleagues. It is. It is. But that fear isn't absent when you're intubated either. Correct. That, that's, that's, that risk goes with cannulation. It doesn't go with – it's not an extubation risk per se. So you, you sort of accept that risk to some degree when you agree to go on ECMO. And so increased bleeding with increased activity is, a, is, is always a possibility. I don't think infection is, is, is any worse. You know, one of the things that we saw, which is, again, in the realm of anecdote, but isn't something to sneer at either, is in uh, one of our older patients who actually went on VA ECMO for anthracycline toxicity, and she was extubated relatively soon after we put her on because the ventilator wasn't doing anything anyway, she got depressed because she was tied to a machine. Mm. She got horribly depressed, and, you know, even though she could talk and everything, but she wasn't depressed because she was extubated. Right. She was depressed because she was on right, ECMO. Right, right, right. And, and she, she really didn't have much of a destination because she'd just gone into remission from leukemia. Uh-huh. And so her, she ultimately had to go to an adult institution to get a long-term VAD placed. Uh-huh. But but having been on ECMO for a month, uh, extubated, we knew she was depressed. Now, you know, they may be depressed and, and sedated when they're intubated, and we just don't see uh-huh. it, right? Uh-huh. I mean, but this was something that we discovered. But I think the benefits are what we've tried to emphasize and, and are real. I mean, I think, you know, getting rid of an irritant is always good, especially in an ICU, which is just full of irritants, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I think using, uh, and we use a lot of sedation to try and suppress, especially in children. I mean, I don't think adults like to be intubated, but I know children yeah. hate it, right? Because they don't understand why they're intubated. Right. And so it's hard to reason with them about this. And so if you can get them off sedation and explain to them and, and bring them, they aren't, one of the things that happens when you're intubated and sedated is you undergo very prolonged social deprivation, which is really not good for a developing brain, right? And when you extubate them, you can almost wake them up and and put them into normal sleep-wake cycles, and they interact with their parents, and they watch TV, and they have, you know, can participate in therapy. I'm convinced that that's very important. Promoting normal breathing, I don't know how to, where to rank it on the, on the scale of importance therapeutically, but I, I have, in, in my old age and gray hair, I've come to the conclusion that Positive pressure ventilation is is not in the least physiologic, no matter how we try to spin it. And I think that getting them to breathe more like they would breathe normally is probably better than than pushing air into their airways. What steps do you think need to be done or what further studies do you think need to be done to look at the value of extubation in ECMO or the practice thereof? Well, there's, there's, there's probably several. One of the things that I think this is, as I alluded to earlier, I think this is pushed to is that if, if in fact ECMO is safer as there, as many perceive it to be than it was, I think there's a sort of a frontier of expanding indications for ECMO. And I would, you know, to to co-opt the sort of the ARDS phraseology, I would consider ECMO as a one potential lung protective strategy for patients that might normally be ventilated aggressively. And so that we may, you know, there may be a day, and I'm not, I'm not trying to 
pull out a crystal ball here, but there may be a day in which, you know, mechanical ventilation is reserved for what we anticipate to be short-term runs that aren't particularly aggressive in terms of the pressures or the volumes used, such as in a post-op setting, whereas severe lung disease may migrate quicker to ECMO, especially if it's safe, and get them off a ventilator and start sort of the lung healing and reconditioning process and avoid ventilator-induced lung injury. I think it would also be interesting to look at long-term outcomes and neurodevelopmental outcomes. Certainly, we know that critical illness is associated with a variety of less than desirable long-term outcomes that are just beginning to be defined. And in this population, it would be interesting to look at the use of sedation one would assume that those children who are extubated get less sedation. Do they have different outcomes? It, it would be a hard question to examine, but I think the long-term outcomes would be of interest. Well, and, and I agree. You know, we've talked about this here in Houston because Houston has developed a developmental outcomes program for survivors of congenital heart surgery. And so there's, a, there's already kind of a pathway mm-hmm. to begin to evaluate those kids. And it's not a stretch, and it's not going to be institutionally hard to begin to to roll our ECMO survivors into that as well. And, you know, one of the factors that we can consider as we look at this longitudinally is sedation and and whether or not the patient was intubated for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Interesting questions. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? No, I don't think so. I mean, I just, you know, the challenge in medicine, I think, is that we all tend to practice as, as we were taught and as we learned. And it's it's both challenging but thrilling to kind of question the dogma and 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 think of ways to do things differently and and it it's when when you get some a positive response and you see for example in our case the fact that kids are talking to their parents again and interacting with them it was something we hadn't anticipated when we started but it's been it's it's it has its own reward absolutely i i think this is really an intriguing paper that you presented and i i really have enjoyed talking with you about it today thank you it's been it's been a pleasure on my part as well margaret Thank you very much. We have been speaking today with Dr. James Thomas from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, about his article, Extubation During Pediatric Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, ECMO, A Single Center Experience, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in November 2014. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.